Welcome in to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. I have a pretty amazing show for you guys today, and I'm quite proud to bring it to you. Now, I'll tell you, in Minnesota, Minneapolis, I think the nation was shocked by the George Floyd killing. I know I was. I was taken aback by it. But you know what? In Minneapolis, it wasn't... I mean, it was shocking. It was a shocking killing. But but in our African-American community, it wasn't a shock at all. In fact, when you talk to people in our African-American community, they would say, you know, this is something that was coming to a head for a long time. They would tell you that Minneapolis, the Minneapolis police force had been quite brutal to them for quite some time. Now... I can almost hear eyes rolling in the white community in Minnesota. I want to assure you, today's program is going to change a lot of minds, especially minds in in Minnesota. I myself had an African-American stepfather. And I can tell you that he had two run-ins here in Minnesota that were quite alarming in the time that he was alive. He's, he's been gone now for about 10 years. And he did nothing. He was an upstanding citizen in Minnesota, uh, took good care of his family, did nothing that warranted any, any type of interaction, negative or otherwise, with the police. But they both happened in outlying areas that, shouldn't have none, nothing of this sort should have happened to him so when our guest today Marvin Haynes when his case came across my desk it didn't shock me in fact I, it I, it made me sad it made me very sad um let me tell you about his case, and then we'll bring him on. I don't want to keep him any longer than we have to, because I want to get right into it. And Basically, I pulled this up from Unicorn Riot, and they did quite an extensive investigative series on Marvin's case. Within 30 minutes of this shooting, there was already action happening. There was a shooting at Jerry's Flower Shop in North Minneapolis. And when officers Rollins and Smelter pulled up in front of Jerry's Flower Shop on Sunday morning, May 16th of 2004, they saw a woman run out the front door, and she was screaming. She told officers that her brother was inside and that she had been shot. When they entered the building, they found 55-year-old Randy Shearer lying dead in a pool of blood. It would take less than three days for police to identify the suspect. They became convinced, based upon very little evidence, had committed the murder. In less than four days, they would formally charge our guest, who at the time was just 16 years old, Marvin Haynes, with first-degree murder, with no physical evidence linking him to the crime, even though he did not fit the description of the shooter. In 15 months, he'd be sentenced to spend the rest of his life in a prison cell. Within 30 minutes of the shooting, Sergeants Michael Keefe and David Matson of the Minneapolis Police Department arrived on the scene as lead investigators of the case. They took charge of the scene and sent officers to interview any possible witnesses. 
The sergeants directed officers to use police dogs to track the route that the shooter took out of the flower shop. And in two separate attempts, dogs tracked the shooter north up the alley at the rear of the flower shop to a concrete pad at the back of 3343 6th Street North, which was a block away. Police interviewed those living at the house, and only one, a young man named Jerry Hare, matched Cynthia McDermott's description of the shooter. In her initial interviews with police, McDermott told them that the man who shot her brother was an African-American male who was 5 feet 10 or 11 inches tall. He had close-cropped natural hair and weighed about 180 pounds, and he appeared to be in his early 20s and spoke with clarity, those are quotes, and, quote, as if he had an education. Other physical characteristics, such as the tone of his skin, change with various descriptions from, quote, real dark on the 911 call to, quote, medium in an interview the following day. Now, two hours after the shooting, Sergeants Keefe and Matson told McDermott, or took rather took McDermott down to the police station to show her the first of three photo arrays that they'd show her over the next three days. The photo lineup was conducted by another officer, Sergeant Rick Zimmerman, using a double-blind procedure designed to increase the integrity of the investigation and reduce bias. According to the officers, Zimmerman was not familiar with the case and did not know which of the photos, if any, contained the image of an actual suspect and which were fillers. Investigators soon abandoned this protocol, which was intended to prevent wrongful conviction of innocent people without explanation. The lineup contained six photos, including a photo of Jerry Hare, the young man who was living at that house identified by the police dogs. McDermott was shown the photos one at a time and asked whether she recognized any of those young men. McDermott stopped at a photo, which was photo number two, which was Jerry Hare, saying that she recognized him from the neighborhood and that he may have been in the flower shop in the past. She also stopped at photo number four, who she said looked like the suspect. The following day, McDermott was shown the same photo array a second time, this time with the photos enlarged. A different officer, Sergeant Bruce Falkins, or Bruce Falkins rather, conducted the lineup. According to Sergeant Falkins' testimony later in court, McDermott again identified the same individual, number four, as a suspect, and she further added that she wasn't 100% positive, but more like 75 to 80%, Falkins recalled. The young man in the photo number four was 20-year-old Max Bolden, whose photo had been used as a filler. Weeks later, police called Bolden's mother at work to inquire about his whereabouts during the weekend of the murder. His mother, Tawanda Logan, told police that Bolden had been staying with family in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Police followed up with family members in South Dakota who confirmed his alibi, and Bolden is now serving a life sentence in South Dakota on an unrelated murder. While McDermott was at the police station looking at photographs in the hours before or after her brother's murder, police were collecting evidence at the scene. Sergeant Rodney Timmerman with the police department's crime lab searched the flower shop for prints and other physical evidence. Timmerman found seven fingerprints, two of which wound up belonging to officers responding to the scene that day. None of those five fingerprints matched our guest, Marvin Haynes. Keep that in the back of your mind. No physical evidence matched our guest, Marvin Haynes. 48 hours after the murder of Randy Shearer, Sergeants Keefe and Matson found themselves with little to go on. 
Their only suspect, Jerry Hare, had been identified by their primary witness as just a kid from the neighborhood. Police later confirmed that Hare was elsewhere at the time of the murder. In the process of identifying him, McDermott had shown just how unreliable her memory was by pointing out a random filler photo and saying she was 75 to 80% sure it was our suspect. Just then, according to a report filed by Sergeant Matson at the time, he got an anonymous tip that the shooter was that the shooter in the flower shop murder was a 16-year-old black male known as Little Marvin. The next morning, Sergeant Matson called the Hennepin County Attorney's Office to request that Marvin Haynes's juvenile records be summoned. They found that Haynes had failed to appear for court the previous day, seeing it as an opportunity to bring Haynes in for questioning without any evidence linking him to the murder. Sergeant Matson requested that a warrant be issued for Haynes' arrest and sent officers to pick him up at his home. After interrogating him, they held him at the Hennepin County Juvenile Detention Center on suspicion of murder. At trial, the prosecutor in the case spoke about an unknown confidential reliable informant that provided some information to a member of the black community who provided it to us. A blatant lie. No information was ever given about a source of this information that appeared just in the nick of time and turned the police's attention to a previous unconnected person, our guest, Marvin Hayes. In some ways, Marvin was an unlikely suspect. According to booking records, he was 5 feet 7 inches tall, weighed 130 pounds, and he had a 4-inch afro at the time of the shooting and didn't look a day older than his 16 years. In fact, if you see the video, which is online at Unicorn Riot, he just looks like a scared kid. Police were looking for a suspect who was three to four inches taller, 50 pounds heavier, and at least four years older who spoke with clarity and had an education. Marvin at the time had dropped out of remedial school. He could hardly read mumbled his words and spoke in slang. In other words, he was the perfect suspect in the eyes of the Minneapolis Police Department. He was a young black male in a city that offered him few prospects. They were looking for someone to set up. On the same day that Sergeant Matson received his anonymous tip, a 14-year-old boy named Ravi Seeley reluctantly told a school police officer at St. Louis Park Junior High that he'd been passing the flower shop after church when he heard a shot and saw someone run out of the store. He described the person as a slender black male with a natural haircut possibly faded on the sides. The next day, investigators showed McDermott and Seeley a photo array. While it was the first time Seeley was participating in a lineup, for McDermott, it was the third. The day after that, they conducted an in-person live lineup at the Hennepin County Juvenile Detention Center for both eyewitnesses. At the same time, McDermott and Seeley identified the new suspect, Marvin Haynes, as a shooter. You may ask yourself, how? Although Seeley would later testify in court that he was very confused, I think, between two people and that he was, quote unquote, shaky on it and that he had tried to tell the officers during the lineup that he wasn't sure about his identification. In other words, he didn't know. McDermott, on the other hand, said he looks like him. At trial, she would testify that she, quote, had no doubt in her identification. 
Parsing through the evidence, it's hard to understand the discrepancies between McDermott's descriptions of the man who killed her brother and her later certainty that the shooter was Marvin Haynes. Unfortunately, modern psychology tells us that such discrepancies are not at all uncommon. The explanation may lie in the fallibility of human memory. Folks, it just gets more and more confusing through all of it. Because after Marvin is put into a room and is put into that room and he's questioned over and over and over again by police and you have to see this video. We have a link to it in the description of this program where he's interrogated over and over and over again by cops and the scared kid is insisting he's held a gun but he's never shot a gun and then tells these cops, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're being vague about a flower shop and a murder. And you can see the fear in his eyes. And he doesn't know what they're talking about. And he asks for his mother, and they never bring his mother to him. After you can tell it's an innocent kid that's being railroaded. And after you hear about how he's put on the stand... And after you see that even his own cousin is turned against him. And after people are being coerced into false testimonies against him. And eventually he's sent to jail. And eventually Marvin Haynes is in jail for 19 years until this thing with George Floyd happens. And our own attorney general here in Minnesota, Keith Ellison, sees this giant can of worms open and decides to put together a unit to look into the Minneapolis Police Department, to look into the Hennepin County District Attorney's Office and says, you know what? Maybe we have something wrong here. Maybe we need to dig into some of these past cases that Mike Freeman and Amy Klobuchar prosecuted Maybe we put innocent African-Americans in jail and we were wrong. Well, they did get it wrong. They got it wrong with Marvin Haynes. And I want to bring him in now, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to True Crime Tuesday and welcome him back to society, Marvin Haynes. Marvin, thank you so much for being on our program today. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate the description you gave about my case. You definitely laid it out thoroughly. Well, you know, I I want to I want to start by let's let's start this off by getting your impressions of from your perspective from the moment that police came to your home. And first of all, I want to I want to I want to talk about your family and talk about the stress that was put on your family, specifically your mother and your wonderful sister, Marvina, who fought for you while you were in jail. Yeah, they was tremendous in um, helping me get to this point to be exonerated. You know, it was a lot of people that turned their back on me from the community to just uh, the justice system that supposed to submit justice and they submitted an injustice. So it was just so, so much injustice in this matter I can't even describe what, what happened, all the things that happened to me. Like, my family was destroyed behind a lot of these things that happened. Well, and we should we should state, and it's it's put eloquently in the 
in the in the video that we're again we're posting in the description of this this program so people can take a look at it for themselves the the great north innocence project is the is the project that helped you to finally get exonerated and you were exonerated by a court um and your charges are now wiped um they there was this this bizarre need to to put you behind bars at 16 years of age and and what it this this thing essentially wiped out your parents savings i mean they they tried to get a, a lawyer for you your parents pushed to try to to keep you out of jail to to get you exonerated and when you look at and i got to tell you unicorn riot did an amazing job getting the compilation of these videos uh, these police interrogation videos, because when you sit and you watch them one after another after another, and the time lapse that's put together, they kept you for hours. Um, yeah. tell, tell me for a moment, and and let our audience know what eventually happened with your mother and father as a result of of this case. I mean, you know, my my family was like I said, it was destroyed. My mom, my dad, they was blaming each other for me going through the situation, which is, wasn't none of their fault. Um, it was the justice system. So it was the people that was put in place with the power to put me in a situation like this. But, um, yeah, it, it, the situation definitely uh, did a lot of damage, not only to me, but my family as well. My friends, uh, it, it, it did a lot. They did, they did a tremendous damage to us. Now, We'll get to it. It wasn't just your mother and father. There are other members of your family who were turned against you. We'll tell people exactly how here in just a moment. Um, explain to me what, how, how you first find out about this. Now, now, the police come to get you. Do they come to your home and 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 just yeah, grab yeah, you? Yeah. What what they happened? Came to my May nineteenth, two thousand and four. I was woke up by the police saying that they had a warrant for my arrest. So, okay, I'm thinking like, okay, well, this is just a little minor thing. I'm going to go. And, I'm, and my mom was saying, well, just go with them. They're going to bring you. You gonna, I'm going to go to court, and we're going to get you up out of there. It was, we was thinking that it was just a, a traffic violation or a curfew violation. Okay. So um, when I got there, I was put in a room, and I was questioned. I was, I was told that if I talked to these two officers, which was – uh, David Matson and uh, Michael Keith, and they said if I speak to these guys, I'll be able to go home. So me being 16 years old and not knowing the justice system, I'm thinking, okay, well, let me talk to these guys. These, I don't know what they want to talk about, but I'll talk to them if they let me go home. I, I'm not having no information about what's going on. So um, as the conversation progressed, I still did. I was I was dumbfounded by what they was talking about. They never really told me it was a murder. They never told me. They was very vague in um, communicating with me. So you got to think. At this time, I was just so confused with what was happening. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen to me, but I just knew that you know they had the wrong person. And I knew that they was going to figure this stuff out. I was believing that, okay, well, these guys accusing me of something, but they're going to figure it out and they're going to come to me and be like, well, we got the wrong person. Let's let this guy go home. And um, I, I was 
sent to prison from that moment, May 19, 2004. You were hoping or trusting in the goodness of the police department that they would figure it out. Meanwhile, they're sitting there, and in this video, if I can describe for our audience, they're sitting with you at 16 years old and going, now, come on, you know all about the, the flower shop. And they're being very vague. They're saying with the flower shop and you know that there's this rear entrance. Right. And then you were just you were at this entrance and you just walked out the back. Right. Just just tell us you walked out the back. In other words, they're coercing you, Marvin, and yeah. trying to get no. you to admit that you were at a back entrance that you were never at. Yeah, they was not only that, they was telling me that. Uh, they had my fingerprints. They had me on videotape. They was feeding me so many lies, but I knew it was impossible because I, I didn't commit this crime. I had no involvement. I didn't have no knowledge of it. So I'm telling them, like, y'all got the wrong person. They was telling me, like, look, just tell us it was an accident and we're going to help you. We're going to figure it out. They were trying to manipulate me to believe I committed a crime that I didn't commit. So it was definitely... um hard in there going through this but i always believed even after they was doing all this stuff that they gonna find the right person and they was gonna let me go you know so i know that sounds crazy but yeah i was just thinking like i never at that moment or i never heard about someone being wrongly convicted or someone being sent to jail wrongfully i just knew that okay well these people gonna find this out this is the justice system they gonna always find out who's the person so I, I had confidence that, well, okay, well, these guys are going to find out that it wasn't me. So, um, yeah, it was difficult them telling me all this stuff, but I just still believed that they was going to find the right person. There's – and I have to ask you, ask you this too, Marvin. There, there's, there's a point where you – there's even there's somebody uh, on the on the video who's who's looking at you and and looking at the at, at almost psychoanalyzing you and saying, I can't believe how composed he is. At the age of sixteen, he's not breaking. He's not breaking under the psychological pressure. He's very well composed. Very, and I don't I don't get how he's doing it and, and how mature he is under that much pressure. I have to ask you that same question. How do you maintain composure at that age, knowing that, you know, even you yourself, you couldn't comprehend that, that at that point that they were trying to railroad you, but how do you maintain composure under that much pressure? How do you manage I, to keep it together? I had no idea how, how did I do that. You know what I mean? I, you so What's so crazy is that it was so dramatic and so like stressful to me. Uh, I can't really remember a lot of the details. Um, I just knew that, um, that I was in that room and I was talking to these guys and I was just telling them the truth and they wasn't listening to me. They was just disregarding everything that I was telling them. So I'm just like, I was keeping my composure because I'm like, well, these guys want to figure this out. These is detectives, these is police officers and they're trained to, send people the right people to jail again i was i was not knowledgeable about wrongful conviction or someone being railroaded or the police um doing these type of injustice uh, unfortunately i wasn't so um that's what gave me the calmness of just telling telling them the truth but if you watch the video um i definitely lost my composure in there because I'm, I'm telling them constantly that y'all got the wrong person. I don't have nothing to do with this. And if you see the video, 
you oh, would yeah. see that I spashed, I definitely spashed out on them and told them because I couldn't take it. You know, I was just like, I'm telling them constantly, you got the wrong person. Oh, there's there's times where you break down and cry. There's times where you tell them and you tell them something that actually they violate your rights because you tell them at one point you choose to stay silent, but they keep pushing you. Man, these guys went out their way to manipulate the process. Um, if you look at my, tra- if you look at the transcripts of that video, they cut it. They cut the transcripts off to make it believe that once I told them to stop talking to me, they stopped talking to me. But if you see the video, it went on for hours. You know what I mean? But not only that, you got to think. I was sixteen. I didn't know what they was trying to do. I didn't know the evidence they was trying to create against me. I just knew that I was innocent. So. I didn't know nothing that they had against me until I went to trial. And when I went to trial, it all came out. I'm like, okay, well, these guys see that I'm innocent and they still trying to send an innocent man to jail. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, if you go read my trial transcripts, you will see, like, the truth was exposed, but these guys wasn't trying to find the correct person. They was trying to find a conviction. Yeah. It's crazy, Marvin. I, I, you know, I, as I sit and I watch and I read, the more I watch, the more I read, the more angry I get. And then I see the video where you have other people on your side from the Great North Innocence Project that are yeah. are, are just as angry. Listen, these people came and saved my life. I love them people because, you know, they're experts of um, knowing about wrongful conviction. If you know anything about wrongful conviction, you know misidentification is the leading cause. Mm-hmm. So when this crime happened to me, well, when this, when this, when they violated my rights and all this stuff, when this start, stuff happened to me, I had no idea what was really going on. I didn't know I was misidentified. I didn't know that the the witnesses described a certain somebody. So when I found out that okay, the witness identified someone that was five ten, five eleven, and short cropped hair, and even the the second witness, Robbie Silly, gave the same description that the eyewitness gave, and he was like across the street. And the police, they didn't want to hear none of that. They, that what they did is they went towards trying to find me convicted by even using a picture of me with short cropped hair, knowing that my hair and my appearance didn't even meet the suspect's appearance. Yes, so they definitely yeah. went out their way to try to create a, a wrongful conviction. And if you know, like I said, if you know anything about wrongful conviction, misidentification is one of the leading causes, along with um, officer misconduct. So, um, in Minnesota, they got this thing called double blind, which means that, okay, well, it's to respect the process. It's to make sure the process have integrity. And, um, in my case, these guys went against these protocols to use a picture for me from having short crop hair, um, 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 producing a, the photos to the to the witnesses, which was a violation. Um, just the influence they was given to the witnesses to identify me. It was just insane. If you go live, watch my live lineup, they call my name out while everybody else was addressed by numbers. So these guys went out there way to convict me wrongfully. Yes, and that, that that's in the video as well. And there's something else when they do that. Um, and I want to address that first. They, they call out your name along with your number in a live lineup. They bring you in, and they do something that 
that to me is absolutely degrading. And they, they not only have you, re- I mean, obviously they have you repeat a line for voice recognition, but then they have you show your teeth. Now, I know that you know that I know why I think that's degrading. Can you tell people, absolutely. can you tell people why, why that's degrading? That's degrading because, you know, back when we were sold, and, you know, we was treated like we wasn't human beings when, when a, a, a black person was auctioning off, they was told to open your mouth up, let's see your teeth, let's see how good your, 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 your teeth is. There's different things that you was told to do or you, you, you was looked at to be purchased. You know what I mean? So definitely, they definitely went out their way to try to degrade me. But not only that, just wrongly convict me. These guys knew I was the wrong person. Um, thankfully, uh, Michael Keith came to court and told the guy on his truth. You know what I mean? He came to court and told everything that I've, I've been saying this long. And he got up there and told the truth. I don't know where it came from. But he did get up there and tell the truth. And he told him that he was manipulated just like everybody else to try to convict the wrong person. So this this does not this is real deep. This is not nothing that was ever fabricated. This was always the truth, and I'm just glad to have my my story told and correct this false narrative that was created. You know what I mean? But not only that, these guys went to my community and made my community believe something. But my my community wrong also because they didn't do the research. All they had to do is go read the Star Tribune, come to court, and see what was happening. In Star Tribune, they were saying this guy don't even meet the description. He's not, he's not even five ten. He's not five eleven. He don't have short crop hair. He has an afro five to four inches. You know, yeah. so yeah. And, and in my community, they just jump behind it. You know what I mean? And it's it's not the victim family fault because they looking for justice, but um, it's the community fault and it's the officers fault for allowing this stuff to happen because we gotta, we gotta, when we see something like this happen, we gotta uh, get behind people that's wrongly convicted and, 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 and look into these things. We can't just believe what the cops saying. We gotta look into these things. There's a question I'm gonna hold until the end here, Marvin, um, because there's an interesting quote in one of the articles I read, and I know it has to, it has to do with pain. Um, and in general pain at that, but, but I was shocked to read what I, what I read and it had to do with when you were released, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold it till the end. And I know you say it's not on the family, but the family, it's not on the family. It's not on the family family at all. I'm not, I don't feel no way about them Okay. because at the end of the day, they was manipulated. They victims. What the system did was create more victims. That's all they did by convicting me and letting the, 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 the actual suspect continue to run free and potentially endanger society, they created more victims. So it's just not it's not their fault. If you like I said, if you know anything about wrongful convictions, the victims is just looking for they looking for justice. They looking for somebody to listen to them and be responsible, held responsible for these type of things that occurred to them. So when the police was manipulating them to believe it was me, they believed it. You know, so it's not their fault. They was manipulated. If, if they listened to what Cynthia was saying, if they listened to what Rory was saying in the, initially, this wouldn't have occurred. They would have went and found someone that met this description, the, the right suspect. You know, mm-hmm. it was it, it just crazy to me. 
you know, and I'll ask you this question before we go to break, and then we'll, we'll go to break. In a, in a time, now, it's not like this happened in the 80s. It's not like this happened in the 70s. In a time where we didn't have criminal technology that couldn't find the right suspect, this was just plain, lazy police work, is, is what it was, simple and plain. And you, can, you could say, and I think we can, say, we can safely say it was racist police work. Uh, you know, the federal government came down on the Minneapolis Police Department. It came down on Hennepin County. It came yeah. down on the on these suspects, and I'll call them suspects. They said, and, and it was Merrick Garland who came down on this area and said, you need to improve. You're not doing your job. He came down on this entire area and said that. Now, it's correct. Yeah. It, with that being said, you know, it, it wouldn't have been too hard for, for the Minneapolis Police Department to come in. If they brought in dogs to to try and track a scent, it's not too hard for them to pull out DNA kits and try and, and they, they fingerprinted. They knew that it wasn't your fingerprints, Marvin, because your fingerprints were nowhere to be found. So how hard would it have been to try and find DNA on the body? Of, of some killer and no it's not you all they had to do was take a dna swab from you and you that's exactly. all they had to do that's no it was deeper than that um again like i said when i was initially uh became a suspect these guys knew it wasn't me because i didn't fit the description from what the eyewitness spent multiple minutes with this person you know she talked to this person for over five minutes so like i said the police did lazy um, police work, absolutely. But not only that, they um, they just they just disregarded anything. They just was trying to get a conviction. You know, like these guys could have did so much more to find the right person, and it destroyed half of my life due to their police work. You know, so it's just it's just it's a shame. To Our community should be scared when we got these type of people in place. You know what I mean? But it's bigger than that because. They just one step of, of policing. They had to take this case to someone was higher than them to get approved to get a warrant for me, to get me initially charged. So people should be scared that we have these type of people in in, in place to um, administrate justice. You feel me? Like, it's yeah. unbelievable that these guys are able to do this. And it's not, it's, it's the, the detective's fault. It's the county attorney's fault. It's the police fault, police chief fault because these guys got to report to someone and them other guys got to report to someone. So it was a definitely uh, the whole system in place that did this to me. Well, the, the really scary part is you had Mike Freeman who initially started it. Then he, he is out of his term. Amy Klobuchar continues it and it gets worse. Then Mike Freeman is reelected. And and he's reelected based on his conviction rate, so he comes Literally. in, yeah, and he comes in and says, "Well, I'm making the streets safer for Hennepin County," and and he runs on that, Marvin. He runs on the fact that he's putting people behind bars, and well, I'm making it a safer county for everybody because uh, you know what, conviction rate is right there. <laughs> Man, it's crazy. The conviction in that time went up skyrocket due to these people. These people wasn't trying to. Uh, admit 
justice. They, these guys were just trying to get convictions anyway. You know what I mean? They're like, And I, I became a victim of them trying to expand their career or whatever they were trying to do. But, um, yeah, I blame all them guys, from Amy Clovershaw to Mike Freeman to uh, Michael Keith to Dave Madsen, the police chief at that time. All them guys was involved in it. Because if they would have did some real in police work, they could have looked inside my case and found out we got the wrong person. You know what I mean? Like they 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 disregarded everything and they went towards trying to convict someone instead of finding the wrong the right person. Now let me ask you this, Marvin. There were there was a, there was some incidents there before trial, and I'm a little sketchy on this. Well, actually, at trial. Um, and, and before we go to break, I want to get to the the trial process. And then when we come back, I want to talk about surviving jail and getting to the point of exoneration. Because I've got to think that just getting through jail it had to be, for a young man who's innocent, had to be absolute hell. Um, but let, let's talk about, you know, you said it this whole process had destroyed your family. You had four people who had testified against you that told the courts that they had been coerced. One of them was your cousin, Isaiah Harper, who is, is telling people now on video, listen, I was coerced. I'd been coerced from the beginning that he was tight with your mother. That was, that was his favorite auntie. That Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Sure. This wasn't nothing that he just now saying he went to the grand jury. He's not the only one that done this. They, these guys was going to the grand jury telling them like, look, I don't know nothing about this case. They forcing me to lie. You know what I mean? Like it was people that in there that couldn't even identify me that came in there and was saying like, okay, Marvin told me he committed this crime. They, they couldn't even identify me. Do you see Marvin in a, in a courtroom? No, I don't even know who this guy is. Do you know where Marvin live at? Yeah, I know where Marvin live at. Can you take where, take me to where Marvin live at? Come to find out, they taking the part. They taking the detectives to someone else named Marvin house, not even my house. You know what I mean? So these things was exposed at court. Isaiah came to court and told the judge. He looked at the judge and said, "Look, judge, they making me say this. He's wasn't he, he? This is not nothing that was just now coming out. This is being came out in my trial transcripts in court." Like this is this is happening two thousand nineteen years ago. So um, yeah, I'm 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 just so ashamed by the justice system, Minnesota justice system, for allowing this type of stuff to take place. And you know the crazy thing about it, the most crazy thing about it, even after that happened to me, I still believed in the justice system to give me justice. I swear, I was in there like, look, every day I'm like, look, somebody gonna come in my life and they gonna look. I might be crazy for even believing something like that. But that's what I had to do to survive that. I'm like, listen, this happened to me. This injustice happened to me. But there's going to be some people that come and they're going to uh, administrate some real justice. And it took Mary to come do that. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's like, it's unbelievable that it took 19 years. Now, was it Isaiah was the one they pulled off the stand for for 40 minutes, coached them and put them back up there and said, you only answer in yes or no questions? Literally, if you, listen, go read my trial transcripts, man. This stuff is not made up. Listen, when Isaiah was testifying, he told him, he told him just like this. You guys is making me say this. I don't know nothing about this crime. Every person that testified gave different stories. 
everyone. No wow. one's story was was the same but mine. My only story was the same. Everybody's story was different. When Isaiah wasn't saying the right thing that they wanted to say, uh, Michael Freeman pulled them off court and was saying, pulled them out of uh, off the stand and said, look, if you don't say what we want you to say, what you initially said, you're going to be arrested, you're going to go to jail. This guy was 14 years old. Jeez. Think about that. Not only that, they talked to Isaiah four or five times before he even gave the, 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 the last statement saying that I was the person that committed this crime. They was cohorting him the whole time. So this stuff is just unbelievable that they was able to get away with this stuff for so long. That's amazing. That is incredible. I, I don't know what to say, Marvin. I, 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 you know, in 19 years of your life was, was just squandered away squandered away because they somebody needed another notch on their belt to continue their political career because somebody needed that to continue their police career because somebody wanted to collect a paycheck yeah that's it i was a paycheck to them guys you know it was it's crazy even think something like that that these people was able to get away with something like this you know And, and they still got their careers going while my life is I walked out of prison with nothing after 19 years. They was, hey, Marvin, you're free here with nothing. I had to, I'm still building, I'm building my life now. You know what I mean? From, from nothing. So it's like that 19 years, I'm 19 years behind due yeah. to what these guys done to me. When you get exonerated, they just kick you out of prison and say, here, here you go, here's your freedom. Being for yourself. With nothing. Yeah, it's not. You know like, what I mean? so, it's not like the movies where they hand you five hundred bucks in a in the in an apartment or whatever, and you're on your own. It, they literally don't have a thing for you. It's just you've got your freedom. It's time to to you know make hay while the sun shines. Speaking of uh, Marvin, also in the description of our program, we have a we have a, a link to I believe it's a GoFundMe you have, correct? Yeah, yeah, I definitely got a GoFundMe, and um. I appreciate it. People can support me and, and help me get back on my feet. This has been a long journey. So it's just like, I'm again, I'm 19 years behind. I'm, I'm now um, just able to do the things that I need to do to get to where I need to be. But I'm just taking it one day at a time. But um, that, that man, I'm still rebuilding the pieces. This stuff is, I can't believe this stuff was able to happen to me, you know. But um, I overcame it, and I'm blessed. Yeah, think about that, folks. I mean, Marvin, you've never, you never went to your high school prom. Man, listen, I had my whole life destroyed. Man, I never, I never went to my high school prom. I never, I never got my license. I never, I never, you know what I mean? <laughs> did anything that someone did growing up from sixteen to thirty six? You know what I mean? So my life was destroyed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like literally. I, <laughs> There's, there's a I don't lot. even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. There's a lot for Marvin to catch up on, so we want to help him get caught up on a lot of that and get caught up here in life. So uh, during the break, uh, click on that GoFundMe. If you if you find it in your heart to contribute to, to uh, Marvin's cause, let's get him caught up on life here. When we come back, I want to talk to Marvin about what it was like as a 16-year-old to get locked up with grown men behind bars and try to adjust to a brand new life that no 16-year-old should ever have to get, especially an innocent one, should ever have to get used to. 
We'll talk about life behind bars as a juvenile with grown men. Now, when we come back, we'll talk about the Great North Innocence Project. How did they come into his life? And what was it like to finally breathe that fresh air of, of freedom after all that time? And, and what's it been like to reunite with Marvina and the rest of the family and finally get acclimated to a free society? When we come back, more with our guest, an, an amazing guest at that, um, We'll talk more with Marvin Hayes here in just a moment. You're listening to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. My guest is Marvin Haynes, and we are talking about uh, the incredible life journey that he has had, uh, literally stuck behind the eight ball and coming out from underneath it and he is now a free man after spending 19 years behind bars after being wrongfully convicted for a murder he never committed marvin before the break uh we were talking about now you've been convicted wrongfully convicted uh you've had your your family and friends turned against you you've uh you've had your cousin on the stand be told you're going to wrongfully testify against your cousin and you're going to do it under penalty of, of uh, jail yourself. Tell me about that, that moment that you realize you've been railroaded. There's no option for freedom and you're going into jail for the rest of your life. What is that feeling that you feel when you realize that you're no longer going to, you're no longer going to be a free man? What do you feel at the age of 16? Man, I was destroyed. I can't even tell you how I felt. I was destroyed to see them people get up there and say guilty for something I didn't commit. I couldn't believe it. I, I thought the justice system was here to send the real people that committed the crime to jail and the innocent set free. I, I, I was thought I was the first person ever really convicted. Again, I wasn't knowledgeable about the justice system. So um, when that happened to me, man, I couldn't even believe it. I told them people, I said, listen, y'all going to burn in hell. Y'all sending the wrong person to jail. At 16, I stood up there and told these people that. You know what I mean? I was destroyed. You feel me? My family, that's destroyed everything that I, at 16, picture at being 16, going through something like this. You know what I mean? Literally, 16 years old, a child being sent to jail around grown men, that real killers, real people that, then committed real crime, real serious crime. I could have been killed in that environment at 16 years old. You know what I mean? So when I got found guilty, I was sent to prison. And I couldn't believe it. I came in that place. I ain't know what to do. I ain't know if I was going to survive or, 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 or what to do. I didn't know what to do. You got to think I was 16 years old with no guidance at that time. You know, and my family didn't know what to do. Yeah. So what that at that in the beginning they tried to they distance themselves because they was they couldn't they didn't know what to do. Which I understand. It's either fight or flight. And that at that time in the beginning, they didn't know what to do. They I, it was just everyone was going their different ways because it, they didn't know what to do. So it was just like it was it was truly painful to know that I was in prison for something I didn't do and I was that young. It's still shocking to me to know that I, I went through that. Was there any 
Anybody, Marvin, when you first walk, I got to imagine the, the feeling of loneliness when you first walk through those jail cell doors has got to be immense. But was there anybody who looked at you and took you on as an older brother or father figure or just said, hey, kid, you know what? Don't worry about it. I got your back. Or were you truly alone when you walked through those doors? Not at all. I was truly alone. You know what I mean? So it was like I had to learn. I had to um, separate myself from people that wasn't good for me. I had to real, really realize that, that um, a lot of these people ain't my friends. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't know who you around. I could have, like I said, that's a dangerous place, man. Stillwater, this Stillwater Correctional Facility that I was in. Yeah. Yep. This is this place is seriously dangerous. So for them to send me there at 16 years old and me to be around these type of people, I was just like, I couldn't believe it. And I did meet people and I told them my story and they looked at me like I was crazy. You know what I mean? Even if they like, man, you was found guilty. You know what I mean? So it was just like, I didn't have no one believe in me when I got there. So it was just like, I had to, I had to literally find ways to get up out of there. And I did. You know what I mean? I'm so grateful that I was able to uh, maneuver, um, survive, um, and just just triumph over that. You know what I mean? Because that wasn't that was not easy. I suppose to to convicted felons in in jail, everybody's got a sob story, and everybody thinks they're innocent. I suppose they thought that you were trying to play the heartstrings too. Is is that the case? Definitely, but I'm from North Minneapolis, which is like a um, it's a it's a close knit community. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people that's from my area knew I wasn't the right person. So when I got in there, the people that knew me or knew me from being in that neighborhood and being from um, Minneapolis, they me being wrongly convicted. So it was just a a new, but they was just like, well. He was convicted, so he had to be involved in some way. You know what I mean? But um, a lot of people did know, like, I was actually innocent because, you know, the streets talk. Yeah. And everybody know what's going on in them type of com- in our type of community. So um, I definitely had some people that um, knew who I was when I was in there. Um, but that stuff is hard. You got to think I was I – was, was able to just just go through something like that and, and be strong. I had to be strong and and figure out ways to get justice. During the time that you're in, uh, how does word get out to the Great North Innocence Project, or how does your case get to them, and how do they introduce themselves to you? Um, when I got in there, the only thing I knew what to do, I had to. I was like, listen, I'm finna write people, and I'm finna tell them my story. Uh, you know what I mean? I was finding inspiration from things I was seeing, um, people I was talking to. So I'm like, okay, well, if I can get someone to know my story and and listen to my story, they're going to know that I'm innocent and they're going to help me get up out of here. So as I when I went there, um, I read about the, the Great North. Well, it was an innocent project at that time. Yeah. I read about them. And um, I'm just like, man, this is the opportunity that I need. These are the people that are going to help me get up out of here. They, they fight for innocent people. So um, I wrote them a letter, and they wrote me back, and they said, look, um, fill out this questionnaire, tell us your story, and we're going to go from there. And they read my story, 
They asked for my trial transcript. They asked, they just kept being curious about my case. They was curious, and they were seeing the inconsistencies in my case. So once I met them, and they came and told me, like, look, we're going to be the ones that are helping you get up out of here, I was just amazed because I'm like, look, it's finally somebody listening to what I'm saying. You know what I mean? So it's a lot of people that write these guys, and they got to they gotta go through a lot of different documents to – make sure someone is not fabricating what they saying. So um, I was just blessed to meet these guys and have these guys in my life. I bet. I bet. Um, and, and how, 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 uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, Marvin? How, how, how much is Marvina involved then after the great North innocence project gets involved? Is she, is she pushing as well, or is it more of a thing where she has to she has to kind of follow their lead? How do, how integral is, I mean, is she there? You know what, my sister. To be honest with you, that she didn't believe in nobody. She kind of like when when the justice system did this to me, she stopped believing anybody that was involved in the justice system. She okay. didn't even believe these guys was going to be the person that helped me. I had to I had to force her to believe in these people. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I believed in them, but she still didn't. She just knew what the justice system did to me, and she just was, she was just a tr- tremendously hurt, and she was just trying to find a way to get justice, and she didn't believe that it was going to be by these guys, you know what I mean? So I had to get her to just jump on board to believe because she was out there telling people my story, she was out there like just protesting, the community telling her. This guy's never getting out. He's the one who committed this crime. So it was just, she went through a lot in the process of um, trying to get people to know my story. But once we was able to put the evidence out there, a lot of people came on board and was like, man, this guy is, you know? So um, it took it took a collective of individuals. It took my sister out there protesting, my family out there protesting. And it took the Innocent Project to handle the legal part of it. Very true. And then that there's that little bit of the the piece of the pie too with, with the CRU and with uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison, who I think took a look at, at all these different cases and I think it, it you know, it it took that, that piece in there as well of him saying, Well, wait a minute, you know, there's there's been this this past that has just been so nefarious, for lack of a better term. That that's just you know this just it has to be corrected. There's a right that has to, or a wrong that has to be righted here. And I think, you know, I think the fear, and, and this is, this is, uh, it's an unjust fear for, yeah. is that, that they think that, well, you know, if we go into one case, then everything that Freeman and Klobuchar ever did is going to be overturned, which is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous yeah. fear, you know, to say, well, well, you overturn one case, then you got to look at all their cases and they're all going to be overturned. Uh, that's uh, part of my language here, Marvin. It's bullshit. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's not what's going to happen because there there's probably work there that's solid that they did do. But there's also a bunch of cases. I, I shouldn't say a bunch, but there's probably a small amount of cases they did that are unjust that do need to be overturned and as a matter of fact there are names in the in the unicorn riot article of of i believe it's five or six men that were unjustly prosecuted that have been uh if they're not already overturned are in the process of being overturned yeah i know multiple people 
that's was wrongly convicted due to these guys. You know, like I was in there. I wasn't just an innocent that the, the first or the last person that was wrongly convicted. It was multiple people that this happened to. I mean, it's a very small number of people that's being wrongly convicted. But think about it. One person is a is a tremendous devastation to the to the community and to that person. So um, it's it, it, it's not right. That's not right to try to convict someone wrongfully when all you got to do is the proper investigation to find the correct person. You know, like it's okay to be wrong. It's okay. It's not. It's not. It's not going to end your life to be wrong about something, mm-hmm. or or say you were wrong about something. But um, I have yet to even get apology from these guys. No, these people that they wrong me and harm me like this. So it's just, it's just, it's, 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 it's crazy. Would but um, let, yeah, well, like let, said, let's let's focus on that for a moment here, Marvin. Uh, would that? Would that be, would it make it easier if tomorrow you got, and and I'm not talking a phone call here, but if you got a personal apology, either from Mike Freeman or from Amy Klobuchar or from, from the administration or even from the detectives who sat you down and, 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 and interrogated you. I don't want an apology. I want them to let's sit down and, and change the next person's life that was wrongly convicted and let's not make it make 19 years of this, you know what I mean, for the next person. I don't want no apology because I can't get what they took from me back. Okay. But what they can do is help me change the next person's life um, that's wrongly convicted. Let's look into some other people's cases and get these guys' cases overturned. That's what they can do to me. I don't want no apology. Let's seek justice for the other people that's going through these things. That's what they can do for me. I don't want nothing from them Okay, but that. That that's very admirable, and you know, I I had read in in many different articles as I was doing the as I was studying up on your case this this weekend, I had read that you're putting just as much effort back into Great North Innocence Project as they had put into you, which I find amazingly admirable, and and you have my utmost respect. Uh, that a lot of people would say, you know what, I'm out, I'm free, I'm going to live my life. That's the first instinct is for someone to say, now that I'm free, I'm focusing on me. And that's the last thing you're doing. I mean, mind you, you're getting yourself set up to live your life, but at the same time, you're reaching back to help others, which I find incredibly inspirational. It was was people that helped me. I could never, ever... um forget someone that helped me. You know what I mean? People tell me now that I'm out. I'm too kind of people that, but you got to think I was in there being treated like a scumbag, treated like a low life, like a real murderer. So when, when it was good people that came into my life, I knew what that meant. I knew what them people support was going to help me get justice. So, um, I'm definitely, if anyone ever need me that supported me, I'm there. You know what I mean? Like, I can't do much, but I, I'm, I'm definitely can can do whatever we can do. Try to to try to change some things that that was wrong out here. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's just like I'm definitely there for whoever was there for me. Like I'm grateful for that because it takes a collective of everyone coming together to get justice. Like this wasn't just a one party that caused this. You know, it was multiple people that that was here supporting me. No, I mean, if you ever shared a post, if you ever just came to my court, um, 
whatever you may have done in the name of, of, of me getting justice was, was tremendous to me. It was important. And that's why I'm here today. That's, that's completely awesome. Marvin, this is the one, uh, this is one of the questions I wanted to hold until the end for you. One of the articles I was reading, and uh, this one was actually on investigationdiscovery.com. They, they left the article with this wording, and I want to I throw it out to you because I, I, I'm going to attach a question to the end of it. And here's what it said. I'm quoting here. While Haynes celebrated his freedom, Randy Scherer's family was not happy with the overturned conviction. They called it a quote-unquote travesty reported care 11. To me, when I read that, I don't read it as hatred. I read it as hurt. Yeah. And I don't read that as anything personal against you. I read it as they look at it as a defeat, as they had justice snatched from them. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay. So when, when in order to replace that justice, when I say replace that justice, in other words, they were promised something by the police department. They were promised something by prosecutors. They were cheated by the system because, and I think you know where I'm going with this. They were told by the system that you were the person but they were lied to, much like you were lied to. I, I, I think it's only fair that Hennepin County do the right thing and, and that the Minneapolis Police Department do the right thing, reopen the case, and go after the right person. I don't, yeah, I know. I don't know that they actually have enough DNA evidence to, to run DNA and, and go find out who Shearer's real killer is. But if they can, they should attempt it. And they should attempt to do the investigation the right way. Because it's only fair to the Shearer's. Only. It's only fair to them. And they deserve it. I'm not mad at them people. They was manipulated. You know what I'm saying? Which is, like I said, if you study wrongful conviction or if you even Google it, you will find out that that's one of the major key things is that's the top five things of wrongful conviction is manipulating of, of witnesses. So influencing witnesses or whatever it may be and um, just trying to get a conviction. But um, it's not their fault. Yeah. They believe for 19 years that I was the person that committed this crime. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's hard on them to be like, okay, the, the guy they thought that committed a crime was, was let free. You know what I mean? But yeah. all I ask them to do is go research, go do, go study my case, and you're going to find out for their stuff and be like, that's all everybody got to do is go study the case. Yeah. I put all the documents and everything out there so people can see for themselves. They can see this stuff for themselves. You know what I mean? That I'm an innocent person. So, I mean, that's all I ask somebody to do. I ask the family to do it. Go read it. Go read everything that happened to me. And you're gonna be you gonna you're gonna say, okay, man, we sent the wrong person to prison. But it's not their fault though. It's not their fault. I'll never blame them. Here's the other question I have for you, Marvin. And it's it's a tough it's a tough question and one that you, you may be combating the rest of your life. How do you overcome the stereotype of convicted felon? Because even though you're exonerated, in the eyes of the law, you never did it. You're innocent. But you spent the time in jail 
and you've yeah. got that hanging over your head. How do you battle stereotypes? How do you overcome, even though evidence you know is what? on your side? Let me tell you something. I never cared about what nobody thinks. In prison, you can't care. I wouldn't have never made, a, made it out of there if I listened to what somebody said. I was in there with an all negative things. Um, the most, like I said, it was an evil place that I, I was in. So, um, I never care what nobody thinks. All, all I say is to somebody that don't believe in me, go educate yourself about wrongful conviction. Go educate yourself on my case. That's all I ask somebody. I don't, I don't need them to, uh, believe in me or I don't care what nobody say because that's their opinion. The facts is the facts. The truth is the facts. Truth always exposes itself. You know what I mean? So I, that's always, I always believed in that. I always believed that truth was going to get me out of there. And it did. You know, you mm-hmm. can't, it's only so long you can hide truth. And I believe in that. And that's what I always believed in. That's what got me in, in this moment. So I don't care what no one say. I wouldn't have never got to this point if I believed what somebody told me. It was a lot of people told me I was never going to get out of prison. It was correctional officers told me I would I would die in there. So I don't care what no one say. I, that's not even, that don't even affect me. You know what I mean? So it's like, I let that stuff rub off of me. Um, but I tell people that, that don't believe, go educate yourself. And you're going you gonna to come and, and you're going to be a believe in me next time. You're going to be like, okay, Marvin was innocent. Marvin is innocent. So I just ask somebody to go educate themselves. Take the time. A lot of people don't take the time to go read or 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 learn about these type of things. I didn't know nothing about this. Like I said, I, when I went to prison, I thought I was the only person that was wrongly convicted in, ever. So I had to go learn and educate myself and come up with strategies to show that I'm actually innocent and put myself out there so people can believe me. So I don't care what no one says. Educate yourself about it. Well, I tell you, my friend, I am... I am so glad you are out. I am so glad you're free. I am so glad you're able to live your life. And thank God it is at the age of 36 where you have plenty of life ahead of you. For sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And please keep doing your thing and keep doing this because, um, like I said, there's other innocent people in there that need these type of platforms. Without guys like you, um, I I wouldn't have made it out of there. You know, it took for people to be like, okay, well, let's investigate this. Let's go read some of this. Let's go talk to some of these uh, witnesses. So I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you taking time out and finding out about my case, about wrongful conviction. So it's shedding light on this now. It, it, it's just helping expose other people or what they're going through. So I thank you. I appreciate it. Well, absolutely, Marvin. It was my pleasure. It was my pleasure to get to know you. It was my pleasure to get to know your case and and Again, my friend, uh, much luck and much success to you. I, I, I wish you to have a long, happy life and, and much success helping others who have been wrongly convicted and in, in, in helping them with their cases. All right. Thank you. Again. Right. Yep. Thank you, Marvin. We appreciate you. It's time now for us to lighten things up a bit. It's time now for us to bring in Mally Fox. And it's time for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? 
And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time again, the time you've all been looking forward to. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. And for that, we need a second. Notice I said a second. Well, Bruiser's on a little bit of a mini vacation this week, so we bring in a co-hostess, the co-hostess with the mostess. We bring in Mally Fox. Hey, Mally, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Oh, darling. I'm, <laughs> I know. I love the spunk <laughs> you put behind it and, and, and the, <sighs> the, the, the try, but I, I know you, you've been a little under the weather. You, it's okay to say that. You can say Yeah. That. I caught the gunk that everybody else has been catching since the holidays. Yeah. It's taken a while to leave my body. 2023 needs to leave. You know, I didn't start off 2024 on the best foot. Mm. I, I just uh, I, I have a feeling that it, it's it's one of those years where you don't get your best traction, but you'll uh-huh. you will you will. It, it's just you know you, it's it's like the race you start where you know the gun went off and and you didn't the first couple of steps you you kind of slipped, but but yeah. the next part of the race the, the the first third isn't the best, but the second and third part of the race uh, you end up getting your speed and you end up finishing strong. So that, I think it's that kind of year. Yeah, because 2023, it's hanging on. It's like, I'm not letting go yet, sucker. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't seen the last of me. (laughs) 2023 wasn't a good year for you? It was okay. I mean, could it be better? Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. (laughs) 2023 could have been a better year. That's and I'm sure. so superstitious. Like when people are like, what, what are your resolutions? And what are, what are you going to do? And all that stuff. And I don't want to say anything. Cause I feel like the last time I did that was 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the year it's going to be great. <laughs> so I try, you know, so I try not to do that, but in my head, I'm like, Oh yeah, it's going to be self care. It's going to be this and that. And meanwhile, I'm just like, deathbed Kleenex <laughs> everywhere it's like one day my ears go out then the next day my voice goes and the next day you know it's just like good god it's just kind of moving around my system i i don't make the resolutions anymore i don't no don't because no. no. it backfires every time well i'm of a mind still of, of living one day at a time so if you live one day at a time you don't make a resolution for a year you make a resolution oh, every day you wake up that's true. Yeah. Look at you being all philosophical. Well, <laughs> I don't know if it's being philosophical. We'll put that on a napkin. I will. I'll put it on a, a, a fortune cookie. Coaster. Yeah. Yeah. Fortune cookie. Yeah. Yeah. I'll make more money that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'd rather have a fortune cookie than a coaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. Drink coasters. You, you, you bury them under your drink. You never see them. Uh, no, I, I just rather would... Uh, yeah, I just rather take it one day at a time and, and handle what I can handle, and then we move on to the next. You know, uh-huh. rather than tell myself, you know, a year ahead of time that I'm going to be something I may not be at the end of the year. Chances are, I'm not going to be at the end of the year what I was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's it, whether it's for good, bad, or ugly, you know. Right. You know, I'm probably not going to be what I I thought I was going to be. Well, let's hope it's for good, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And that's that's what we all strive to be. We all strive to be better at the end of the year. But there's some years, oh, boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you you never know. That's the, the funny thing about this life is, is the journey, you know. So, And all you can do is just enjoy the journey. So if you enjoy it one day at a time and say, hey, you know, at the end of the day, you know, how do we do we chalk that up to a victory? Or do we just go, whoo, let's file that one away and never look at it again? Uh, you know, we uh, 
we can judge that at the end of the day and and uh, wipe it out of the memory, or we can keep it as a keepsake and then we move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how I tend to look at it and like to look at it. So yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a little easier to digest as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> rather than oh my god look at all the things i failed <laughs> well you know and and it's, I, I i hate to do the cliche thing but uh you know failure is truly a way to learn i mean that's that's the only way you do i've done life. enough learning i know me too i've <laughs> i've done enough learning for five lifetimes but um oh my goodness but you know it's it you, you know you don't learn by winning either you know oh, that's true if, if you win all the time, then what have you learned? Yeah. You know? So, yeah. that is, that, and that's supernatural news and, and parish here. And, 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 <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I don't even know what program we're doing. Uh, no, that's uh, Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. Actually, these these failures <laughs> are learning every day, Mally, the Dumb Crime, yes, Stupid Criminals. Yes, let's make us look better or feel better yeah, about we're gonna ourselves. Yeah, we're going to make ourselves feel better today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. Uh, boy, have we got some interesting stories today. Um, we've got people, of course, that are, are tripping all over themselves and learning left and right. We're going to start out today with a man who, uh, learned a little lesson about, uh, the playoffs this year. Okay. He, he learned that generally when people come into town for the playoffs, Mally, that, uh, they don't stay at their town home. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'm talking about Tay, Tay, Tay. Uh, when she comes to see your man play for the Kansas City Chiefs. Of course, I'm talking about Taylor Swift. A man was seen trying to enter Taylor Swift's Tribeca townhouse. He was arrested by NYPD. No, she was not at her Tribeca townhouse because she was up in Buffalo for the Kansas City game. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. She was staying with her man, uh, you know, up in Buffalo. People don't draw that line, you know? They don't, they don't live in reality. Right, yeah. right. Well, they're the scariest kind. Yeah, and then even if they were there, if you ran into Mr. Kelsey, I would think you'd shit your drawers. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he'd probably take you apart. Right. Uh, I don't think he's he'd be He's a big guy. He's a very big guy. Very big, scary guy, I'd think, if you're threatening his woman. Uh-huh. I don't think I'd take that, uh, I'd take that chance uh cops arrested a man seen trying to enter taylor swift's townhouse in tribeca on saturday police in the nypd's first precinct responded to a 911 call and i think they probably did it pretty quickly mally uh, oh i'm sure oh yes uh for a disorderly person on franklin street they were told that the suspect whose name has not been released probably out of sheer embarrassment um had tried to enter swift's townhouse After checking records, cops arrested him for failing to answer a summons for disorderly conduct issued in Brooklyn in 2017. Not the first time this guy's been in trouble. Uh -uh. It was unclear Saturday night whether the man would be charged with trying to enter Swift's house. I think he probably should be. Swift's whereabouts were not known Saturday. I'm guessing he was or she was in uh, Buffalo. But her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey's football team, the Kansas City Chiefs, were in Buffalo to play the Bills on Sunday. Here's a little tip to the people who wrote the article. They were in Buffalo <laughs> <laughs> getting ready for the game. 
says here, crazed fans and stalkers have a long record of trying to reach Swift at her Manhattan home, which is unfortunate. In July of 2022, 35-year-old Joshua Christian of Brooklyn allegedly showed up to the pop star's townhouse. Christian shouted threats into the intercom, warning that he would hurt her if they weren't together. Now, that's not only pathetic, but sad. Right. And it's scary. It is scary. Yeah. In another incident in January of 2022, Morgan Mank drunkenly crashed his vehicle into the side of the townhouse, then claimed he would not leave the scene of the crash until he met with Swift. See, I, I don't get the people who cross the line. I really no. don't. Uh-uh. Well, and when you're famous, too, I mean, social media shows everybody where you live. Yeah. And it's not like you live behind big gates or anything when you're in New York City. You're right there on the street. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've had a lifelong crush on Janet Jackson, but I would never take those extremes. Mm -hmm. Never. It'd be nice to run into her, shake her hand, say I've been a huge fan since you were Penny on Good Times. (laughs) I'd love to say that. But, Uh But I would never cross any extra i wouldn't crash into our town home and refuse to leave right that's weird it's uh-huh. just weird but could be, you imagine if you're the spouse of that guy that crashed in the town home and not wanting to leave i would be like what the hell divorce city here we come well either that or, or you're drawing a firearm and walking outside and saying you don't want to leave you're going to leave yeah. one way or another i mean after a while it's got to be maddening right you know uh, at least three other incidents, and one involving a superfan in 2021, a stalker in 2019, and a musician looking for career help in 2016, again, not the way to go about it, also featured men trying to break into the townhouse. I don't know if you're Travis Kelsey. Do I mean, you've got to be incredibly patient to put up with this kind of crap. Right, yeah. Know? Uh, Swift also has faced issues with stalkers trying to gain access to her other properties in the past, including her home in Beverly Hills and a mansion in Rhode Island. Again, superstardom. I mean, it, it just, ugh. There's, there's a very ugly side of it. Yes. And people go, oh, poor baby. Well, all those millions and all that fame. No, really. People are weird. They get weird mm-hmm. about stuff. Remember the there was a guy that broke into the wasn't it Buckingham Palace and he sat on the throne mm-hmm. when the I can't remember if the queen was home or not but because he did it a few times yeah yeah and you know it it's one thing to say oh wouldn't it be nice to or wouldn't yes. it be nice to me wouldn't it be nice to meet wouldn't it be nice to sit on the throne wouldn't it be nice to do this wouldn't it be nice to do that it's nice to imagine when you cross that boundary it's sick. Yeah. And, and you need to just leave it alone. Uh, here's a story that I find unnerving, Mally. There's, okay. there's, there's rightful arrests and wrongful arrests. In today's, earlier in today's program, we talked about wrongful arrests. Mm-hmm. And here's a wrongful arrest that's just disturbing. There's folks out there, as you know, freezing to death. Right. In, 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 in the winter, especially the last few weeks uh, out there. As folks are freezing to death in the Midwest, an Ohio pastor is charged for offering shelter from that freezing weather, Mal. Uh, Whose responsibility is it to protect the unhoused when it's freezing outside? The city, the state, homeless shelters, the church? 
Well, hold on to that thought for a minute. Winter is officially here with backbreaking heavy wet snow and a surge of Arctic air. Some people are still without power from a recent snowstorm. The unhoused became more vulnerable when wind chills are in the single digits. The Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office said January 15th, it was investigating three possible hypothermia deaths. The writer of the article wondered why more churches don't open doors to the unhoused to sleep or warm up when the weather gets dangerously cold which is a good question because there are some politicians who put it back on the churches mm-hmm. something to think about the author says it's the godlike thing to do right mm-hmm. you would think maybe more don't do it because of cases like an ohio pastor who opened his church doors because the homeless shelters were packed only to be issued 18 zoning law violations. Oh, my goodness. Yes, related to keeping his church open to people who needed a warm place to sleep. Chris Avell, who's the pastor of Dad's Place in Bryan, Ohio, was arraigned in court last week because he kept his church open 24-7 to provide warmth to the unhoused. Ohio law prohibits residential use in first-floor buildings in a business district. Because the church is zoned as a central business, the building is restricted from allowing people to eat or sleep on the property. Now, does that make any sense to you, Mally? No, and there needs to be exceptions. When it comes to freezing weather or the safety of a human being, church should be allowed to open up the doors. Sydney used to be like 24-7, like they never locked their doors. They yeah. You could always go in there. Yeah, yeah. Avell went on to say, this is how I worship my God, and just, and I just want to be able to worship my God, which makes sense. According to the city, Avell was sent a letter in November informing him the homeless were prohibited from sleeping at the church overnight. He ignored the letter, and during a New Year's Eve service, police arrived and issued violations. Many of these people, they've been rejected by their families. They've been cast aside by their communities. So if the church isn't willing to lay down their life for them, who will? This is what we're called to do, Avell told Fox News. Jeremy Dice, who's Avell's attorney, called the city's actions unconscionable. They would rather kick these folks to the curb in the cold outdoors of December and early January than allow the church to remain open 24-7 to those who need it most, Dice said. In some ways, Avell was trying to prevent what happened in Milwaukee, which is people dying on the street in the cold. Homeless shelters fill up this time of year as people seek refuge from the bitter cold. While shelters do their best to ensure no one ends up in the cold, people often get frustrated and tough it out on the street. Avell saw a problem. He said he addressed the issue by helping 100 people and is now facing criminal charges. 100 people, Mally, off the streets. And he's now facing charges in court. He needs to get a good lawyer to fight that. I mean, ethically, they should have waived those charges. You would think uh, either that or the law needs to be changed there in Ohio. Right. Especially especially for churches. Yeah. Or that, that there needs to be an exemption to that law for churches. I understand a business not being able to house people. I get that because there is there is something to be said about people squatting in businesses. Okay. In winter, and it can uh-huh. happen. Uh, people will take advantage of that law if you, if you do something about that. But there does need to be an exemption for churches in yes. Ohio. 
because that's that's if you're going to and again we're not a political show but if you're going to on a political spectrum say you know what the churches need to take up for shelters and some of that government funding then you need to make the exemption in the law that says churches are not a business mm-hmm. and don't fall under business law so there you go Let's move on. A Wisconsin man charged for robbing a quick trip at gunpoint after his card is declined. <laughs> so they've got his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that it's a good idea to, you know, at that point go, well, you know, I really needed this milk and bread anyway, so stick them up. <laughs> uh, we go to Whitewater, Wisconsin, Mally. A 25-year-old Wisconsin man has been formally charged in connection to robbing a quick trip while brandishing a handgun back in early January. According to the Whitewater Police Department, shortly after 2.45 a.m. on January 3rd, officers responded to a quick trip in the city of Whitewater for a report of an armed robbery. Preliminary investigations revealed the suspect, later identified as Noel J. Gonzalez, attempted to purchase an item inside the store, but his card was declined after multiple attempts. When employees wouldn't allow Gonzalez to leave without paying for the product, he allegedly reached into his waistband and brandished a firearm. <laughs> the second way to pay besides American Express. Right. Yeah. And it's over one item, too. It's not even like probably a high cost item. It's like if you're going to go big, go big. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're going to pull out a gun, make sure it's like 20 bottles, bottles of liquor, like a couple cartons of cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, a full tank of gas. Clean them up. Yeah, clean <laughs> yeah, them up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gonzalez reportedly made threatening statements toward the Quick Trip employees, even saying that he was going to, quote unquote, start spraying. Oh, geez. Yeah, and I don't think he meant, you know, because of a bad bladder. <laughs> right. Fearing what Gonzalez might do, employees told him to take the item and leave. Gonzalez stole the item and left the Quick Trip without further incident. <laughs> <sighs> At the same time, officers were investigating the armed robbery. The uh, Whitewater Police Department received a separate phone call of an incident involving a male who had been drinking alcohol and was being disorderly toward the caller. It was advised that the suspect was also in possession of a gun. After officers arrived at the secondary location, they recognized the suspect involved in the secondary call, and that was Gonzalez, who was accused of robbing the quick trip. (laughs) So he didn't stop at one. Right. Evidently, he learned that a gun's better than a credit card. He's like, well, it worked at one place. Let's try this again. I guess. During the secondary incident, Gonzalez was taken into custody without incident, and the handgun was recovered at the scene. Court records show that Gonzalez was charged with armed robbery, carrying a concealed weapon with disorderly conduct with a domestic abuse modifier. Wow. They really run up the winner. Yeah. (laughs) He's expected to return to the Walworth County Courthouse on January 29th. So there you go. It just goes to show... Always bring your wallet. <laughs> yeah. Or a card that works. Yes, or a card that works. Make sure there's money in the account before you use your debit card. <laughs> a man hides his counterfeit money in a Zaxby's chicken wing box in Florida. That's right. We're going to Florida, Mally. Tampa, to be exact, where they're still licking their wounds from that lion's beating. <laughs> Just had to throw that in for you there, Mel. Thank you. You're welcome. No, the whole town's excited. Oh, the whole I town, bet, the whole state. I bet they are. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to the championship game, by gosh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you open a box of chicken wings from Zaxby's, I don't know, is that good chicken? I've never been to a Zaxby's. You know what? It's actually okay. Is it? 
Yeah. It's not bad. It's not the best, but <laughs> well, it's good. It's probably why you're hiding your counterfeit money in it. Because <laughs> where else are you going to put it? <laughs> That's right. Well, not a KFC box because too yeah. many people will be looking in there. <laughs> when you open a box of chicken wings from Zaxby's, the last thing you expect to be some counterfeit money. But on Wednesday, a 26-year-old man stashed the fake currency that he made in his Zaxby's chicken wing box, according to the Columbia County Sheriff's Office. The department said a deputy was conducting a citizen contact with two men in their car at a Zaxby's parking lot. While talking to them, he detected, of course, a little bit of an odor of the marijuana. Oh, jeez. And discovered one of the men had an outstanding warrant from DeSoto County for possessing a firearm. And by the way, he was a convicted felon, so can't do that. Right. The deputy then detained Brian Chapman and searched his vehicle. That's when he opened a chicken wing box and found it filled with counterfeit money, along with finding a firearm and a black trash bag. Because where better to hide your firearm than a black trash bag? <laughs> These guys are so clever. Chapman admitted to producing and possessing the fake currency in the firearm. He was arrested and booked into the local detention facility without bond. Chapman is facing charges for his warrant, along with the counterfeit currency and the firearm. No word on uh, whether the chicken was counterfeit or not. Just saying. Uh, boy, oh, boy. You ever play make-believe with an object, you know, like you've, I mean, not as a child, Mally, but as okay. an adult. So, like, let's say you've got a cookie and you pretend you hold it up and say, look, the moon looks beautiful tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I like your face on that. Uh, um, we're stretching that one. <laughs> right. Uh, because. No, I, ha I have noticed, <coughs> excuse me, that I've noticed, like. Not like, um, you know, when you get a chip and it looks like a state or Jesus or something. Yeah. I'll do that where I'm like, hey, this looks like a, you know, something. But yeah, like a Cheeto that looks like Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but not a cookie up to the moon going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the moon looks beautiful tonight. Yeah, it's glowing. Uh, well... <laughs> I'm going to show you a picture of this guy, and you'll understand why this guy did what he did. Uh, take a look at this guy right here. Oh, he looks smart. Doesn't he? He looks like a PhD. <laughs> what if we're going to, one of these times we're going to do a story, and we're going to find out, like, we're related to them somehow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it's my cousin. Oh, <laughs> Exactly. Shit. I haven't seen him since the last reunion. Yeah, well, that's what he's up to. Um, well, this dope finds a lost phone and goes ahead and uses it for a bomb threat. <laughs> oh my god because that's the first thing that comes to mind <laughs> the owner left the device in a walmart store's bathroom according to cops and this genius decided hey uh, bomb threat oh my god yeah moments after finding a lost cell phone in a walmart bathroom a florida man used the device to call 911 and claim there is a bomb in the store According to police who say the suspect later confessed that he had previously seen TikTok videos showing similar fake threats and he decided to make one himself. Oh, geez. Uh, monkey see, monkey do. He probably pulls fire alarms, too. He probably does. Doesn't he look like he does? Look at this yeah. guy. Does he, doesn't he look like, oh, I saw it on uh, TikTok, so I'm yeah. going to try it. <laughs> he doesn't look very smart. No. 
he looks like the kind of guy who on the 4th of July puts a Roman candle in his ass just to see if it can uh, light it off and survive. <laughs> yeah. Police responded Friday afternoon to a Walmart in Port Charlotte after a man called in a bomb threat to 911. When a police dispatcher dialed the number from which the threat was placed, the suspect said, tick tock, tick tock, before hanging up again. <laughs> just like that? Yep. Tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> After the phone's owner told cops he had left it in the store, a review of surveillance footage showed another man entering the bathroom moments before the 911 call was placed. The second man departed the store as police were arriving. Cops quickly identified the suspect as 28-year-old Cody Clements, spelled with a T, C-O-T-Y. Oh, not saying intelligence <laughs> level enters here, <laughs> but when you can't spell Cody correctly, right. you're probably not all that brilliant. He lives about 10 miles from the Walmart, Mally, so that's a long walk. <laughs> After going, TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> Uh, after being read his rights, Clements re uh, reportedly copped to seeing the cell phone in the stall and deciding to make a prank 911 call. <laughs> Evidently not that bright. <laughs> yeah. Clements added that he had watched people on TikTok making fake bomb threats and decided to make one himself. Because, you know, only funny to him. Right. According and everything you see on TikTok is real. Yeah, yeah. yeah that too. According to the report, Cote stated he regrets his decision and realizes he made a bad decision. Too late now, Cote. Clements was charged with making a false report about planning a bomb or weapon of mass destruction, which is a second-degree felony. Cote was released from the county jail on $15,000 bond. Uh. Yeah. And has been ordered by a judge to have no contact with any Walmarts. The, <laughs> there goes his fun on the weekends. His picture's going to be up by the door. Do not allow this guy to enter. <laughs> you know you're a, a loser in a putz when you can't go into any Walmarts. Yeah. <laughs> Remember back in the day when you could write a check? And so they would always, like, you'd go to those mom and pop restaurants or bars, and they would have, like, a wall full of photos of people that aren't <laughs> supposed to be allowed in because they wrote bad checks. They yes. would just display them. <laughs> There's only two places in Florida where you can go on a Saturday night if you don't make if you, if you make less than fifty thousand dollars. Actually, three. Okay. The Publix, the Walmart, and Chinese restaurants. <laughs> and this guy probably can't go to all three now. Probably not. <laughs> He's screwed. Uh... Well, what did you do, Coty? No, I called 911 from a bathroom with somebody else's phone. <laughs> Jeez. My name's Cote. Cote. And he looks just the way I made him sound. Yep. Yep. Although I have somebody better for you, Mally. Oh. <laughs> just when you thought it didn't get any worse. Right. If I had to say to you, Mally, you're deep in the throes of your addiction your drug addiction. <laughs> yeah. And you could trade just about anything for drugs. What is the least likely thing you think you could trade for drugs? 
Probably me. No one wants me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that, Mally. I've gotten plenty of emails from people who would trade you for drugs. (laughs) And would do it right. (laughs) And would do it right now. Oh my God. I got Vicks vapor up, a robe, you name it. I'm I'm looking good. They would Um, and they would do it in your current state, probably for a key or two of cocaine, probably. Um let me throw in one of these real quick. There we go. Um, <laughs> I guarantee you, you're worth more than what this guy traded drugs for. <laughs> or tried to. Okay. Uh, okay, the most, just your wildest imagination. You're in the throes of a deep addiction. You're thinking, oh, oh I, I, uh, how am I going to get, uh, how am I going to get my drugs? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trade this is like mad libs here i'm gonna trade blank for drugs my dead ferns <laughs> that's really good <clears throat> i brought them in to save them for the winter time and they're dying on me that's pretty close <laughs> this man this 25 year old man thought he could trade his fried pickles from buffalo wild wings oh jeez for drugs <laughs> Yeah, but do they come with the ranch sauce? I mean, oh. ranch is like the deciding factor. Oh, yeah, that might put it over. Yeah, you know, you're right. And are they fresh? Are they fresh out of the yeah. fire? Yeah, true, yeah. true. Because if they're a couple hours old, no, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. But if they're fresh out of the fryer, <clears throat> oh, and the ranch sauce, you're right. Mm-hmm. Need ranch. Yeah. The Buffalo Wild Wings had closed late on Sunday when Justin Carpenter pulled up to the Lawrence, Indiana restaurant. Of course, it's Lawrence, Indiana. (laughs) That may go over in Lawrence, Indiana. I don't know. Uh, Around midnight, looking for food, fried pickles to be exact. In an ill-advised bid to get the kitchen reopened, 25-year-old Carpenter proposed a barter exchange to B-Dub's employees, two of whom were minors. (laughs) Oh, this will get them to do it. Oh, my goodness. As alleged by police, Carpenter (laughs) offered drugs to Buffalo Wild Wings workers in exchange for fried pickles. (laughs) Man, that craving was strong. Yeah, it was. Carpenter... God, let me show you a picture of this guy. This is the guy who, who does this. Uh, oh, yeah, he looks like he would do that. <laughs> yeah, I got a question for you. Can I get some fried pickles? And uh, I'll give you some coke. I got coke, I got ecstasy, I got weed. Uh, got a speedball if you need it. <laughs> Can I get something in there, fried pickles? Um, <laughs> good God. Mm. Okay, so here's the deal. As alleged by police, Carpenter offered drugs to Buffalo Wild Wings workers in exchange for fried pickles. Carpenter, who was wearing an ankle monitor as a result of a prior drug arrest. Oh. Why is he out at Buffalo Wild Wings if he's got a monitor on? Offered marijuana, cocaine, ecstasy, and vape cartridges containing THC, according to workers interviewed by cops. Carpenter, accompanied by a male friend, reportedly declared, If you make us some fried pickles, I'll make it worth it. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah well in that case let me get you an order right away uh employees did not agree to the drugs for pickles trade and carpenter departed. <laughs> of course they didn't that should be a t-shirt drugs for pickles oh yeah drugs for pickles mm. and carpenter departed the buffalo wild wings 
too sweet. Before leaving, though, investigators charge a carpenter left three small bags of marijuana on the restaurant's front counter. And he told the manager, give those bags to the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Just for putting up with me. Give it's it's uh, I think Jerry Lewis did that in the 70s. Didn't he give the drugs to the kids? Not quite sure. Uh, I didn't find his humor funny. You didn't find his humor funny? No, Jerry Lewis. Not really. Oh, I thought you meant this carpenter guy. (laughs) Oh, Yeah, that's why I tell the cops after he leaves. Yeah, I just didn't find that guy funny. Didn't find him funny. I just, uh, yeah. hmm. Uh, Police subsequently tracked Carpenter's vehicle to a nearby Speedway gas station where he was taken into custody. Post-arrest searches of Carpenter in his car turned up marijuana, cocaine, oxycodone, Xanax, THC cartridges, and scales containing a white powder. This guy was hitting it out of the park, Mal. Yeah, he had a smorgasbord of drugs. Yeah, he was a regular Indiana Scarface is what he was. (laughs) Uh, Carpenter was arrested on multiple felony and misdemeanor narcotics charges and booked into the county jail. According to court records, he's also a defendant on two separate drug cases filed last year which resulted in pretrial service officials outfitting him with a GPS ankle monitor. Oh, my gosh. He was proudly displaying at the Buffalo Wild Wings. His parents must be so proud. Oh, they've got to be. They've got to be. If Carpenter secures his release from custody, a judge has ordered him to have no contact with the Buffalo Wild Wings or its employees or their delicious fried pickles. (laughs) Yeah. As for future obtainment of fried pickles in the vicinity of the Indianapolis suburb, Yelp does have suggestions. So you have to go to Yelp to figure out where else you can get fried pickles in the area. I'm sure Carpenter is all over it. Speaking of things you can score for a certain amount of money or drugs or whatever else you want to offer, a reformed mobster went after one last score, so to speak, when he stole Judy Garland's ruby slippers from Oz. Oh. Did you hear about this story? No. Uh-uh. It's kind of an interesting story. I want to thank uh, Tony is for it, sending this. Is it the museum that's in Minnesota? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The aging reform mobster who has admitted to stealing a pair of ruby slippers that Judy Garland wore in The Wizard of Oz gave in to temptation for one last score after an old mob associate led him to believe the famous shoes must be adorned with real jewels to justify their $1 million insured value. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Some people are gullible. Yep. Terry John Martin's defense attorney finally revealed the 76-year-old's motive for the 2005 theft from the Judy Garland Museum in the late actor's hometown of Grand Rapids, Minnesota, right here in our hometown, Mally. <laughs> our hometown of Minnesota, not hometown of Grand Rapids. <laughs> in a new memo filed ahead of his January 29th sentencing in Duluth. Duluth. Duluth is on fire. We don't need no water. Let them burn. The FBI recovered the shoes in 2018 when someone else tried to claim an insurance reward on them. Who thinks they're getting paid off on those, by the way? Oh, people are stupid. I know. Mm. But Martin wasn't charged with stealing them until last year. Martin pleaded guilty in October to using a hammer to smash the glass of the museum door and display case to take the slippers. He had hoped to harvest real rubies from the shoes and sell them. <laughs> oh, dear God. What an idiot. 
Hasn't he watched the movie in HD? I know. <laughs> and wasn't there like three or four pairs? Yes. Yeah. That they used? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but a fence, a person who deals in stolen goods, informed him the rubies were glass and Martin got rid of the slippers less than two days after he took them, he said. Defense attorney Dane DeCray uh, said in his memo that an unidentified former mob associate tempted Martin to steal the shoes even though he hadn't committed a crime in nearly 10 years after his last prison stint. <sighs> so he came out of retirement after 10 years and he goes, yeah, you know what? I'm going to take the ruby slippers because there's probably real rubies on them. <laughs> One last ice. One last yeah. ice, Mally, over ruby slippers. And wasn't he like 70-something years old, you said? Yeah, he's 70. Well, at that point, he was 66. <clears throat> oh. Yeah, but yeah. But, you know, 66 years old, he could have come out for anything. It could have been right. one last big drug heist. It could have been, uh, you know, a life of running, running hooahs. But no, it was the ruby slippers. Brilliant guy. At first, Terry declined the invitation to participate in the heist, but old habits die hard, and the thought of a final score kept him up at night, DeCray wrote. <laughs> it was this that kept him up at night. Jeez. After much contemplation, Terry had a criminal relapse and decided to participate in the theft. DeCray and prosecutors are recommending the judge sentence Martin to time served because he's physically incapable of presenting a threat to society. Oh, no, he took the ruby slippers, Mally. You throw the book at him. <laughs> Martin is in hospice care with a life expectancy oh. of less than six months. Oh, yeah. He he's not going anywhere. No. <laughs> He needs oxygen all the time because of his chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, or COPD, and was in a wheelchair at his most recent court appearance. Even if he were sentenced to prison, his poor health might be grounds for a compassionate release. Martin had no idea about the cultural significance of the ruby slippers and had never seen the movie. What? Everybody has seen that movie. Right? Not this guy. Instead, DeCray said he was just looking for one last big score. And the old Terry, that's in quotes, with a lifelong history of crimes like burglary and receiving stolen property, beat out the new Terry, who seemed to have finally put his demons to rest after being released from prison in 1996 and became a contributing member of society. DeCray urged the judge to consider the major events of Martin's life when deciding whether a lenient sentence is appropriate. Martin suffered under a cruel stepmother who mistreated him and his three brothers so badly for several years that he left home at the age of 16 and began drinking and stealing. While on parole from prison, Martin's girlfriend became pregnant with twins, but he missed their birth after his parole was revoked. Right after his girlfriend brought the one-month-old twins to prison to meet him, they died after a train struck her vehicle. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This was truly oh. the turning point in Terry's life, his villain origin story, it was quoted as saying. And the reason he not only went down his dark path but accelerated towards it, DeCray wrote, his son said it best, the twins' death made my dad just give up on life. He decided on a life of crime. Martin's lawyer also said the judge should consider that Martin had not committed any other crimes in nearly a decade before stealing the slippers, not, nor in the years since then. DeCray said Martin didn't even try to claim a slice of the insurance reward money when some of his other associates tried to collect. Oh. 
As you had pointed out, Mally, one last note here. Garland wore several pairs of ruby slippers during the filming of the classic 1939 musical, but only four authentic pairs are known to remain. The stolen slippers were insured for $1 million, but federal prosecutors put the current market value at about $3.5 million. Wow. I think Debbie Reynolds had a huge collection, either of Judy Garland or of Wizard of Oz or something. And I think when she passed, it either got sold at an auction or was donated. I can't remember. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Because I remember hearing that she was broke, but she had like this huge collection. Yes. Yes. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Mm. So you want to hear something super quick and funny? Sure. Yeah. The other night I was feeling homesick mm-hmm. and we discovered that the Ramsey County Police, they have a live feed like on YouTube Oh, yeah. Where they just drive around. Yeah. So for like an hour, I sat there and I watched them drive around downtown St. Paul. Yeah. And this one, and they like switch off to different cops. But mm-hmm. this one guy's like, oh, and over here on your left, you'll see, <laughs> was it Timmy Reed or Tommy Reed? Whatever. Yeah, Tom and Reed. Then, yeah. Yeah. And then over here, you have this. And then, oh, this food's great over here. <laughs> so I sat there watching. <laughs> I was like a, what do you call it, a ride share, a ride along? Yeah, ride along. Yeah, you're doing a ride along. Yeah, 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 it was very entertaining, but it was live on YouTube. So I'm like, oh, I remember that place. Oh, I used to live right down there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was also like negative 30. I'm like, thank God I'm not there. Yeah. I mean, it was cold here, but I was like, damn. Yeah. But yeah, so it was fun. They did this ride along. Yeah. You did a ride along with the Ramsey County Sheriff. Look at you. All the way from Detroit. (laughs) So have you jumped back back on since or do you have future plans? No, but I'm going to because it's fun. That's cool. That's very cool. Now everybody's going to be jumping on Ramsey County Sheriff's uh, YouTube and you won't be able to get on. I know. I'll be like, what the hell? But no, (laughs) I mean, it's entertaining. Yeah. Well, I bet it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, there's Cosetta's. I used to eat there. (laughs) Oh, Cosetta. You know, Cassetta used to be so good, and it's, it's yes, it's gone downhill. It, oh, has it? Uh, I haven't been there for like ten years. Yeah, I've been in Michigan. So it, they they do a lot of they cook everything in the morning, and then it sits in warming pans all day. Oh, yeah, ew. So close circuit to Cassetta, up your game. You used to be so good. I mean, do they have different owners? I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it went corporate or if it changed hands or what, but it used to be that everything was so fresh. Remember when it was so fresh yeah. and so good? Cassetta is an Italian market slash eatery, and it's it's maybe a couple blocks down from Excel Energy Center and uh, where, the, where the wild play, and, and it's um, the NHL team here in town. And it is it used to be the quintessential Italian market and eatery. Because their pizza was so oh, good. So good. Huge slices. Yeah. And then the rigatoni. Oh. Yeah. Because I went to the University of St. Thomas. Yeah. And so my dad, he would come and visit me for like lunch and stuff. And he would take me down there. Well, he'd take me grocery shopping. And then we'd go down there and have lunch. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I have fond memories of that. And it yeah. was delicious. Their lasagna was killer. Yeah. That a killer lasagna. Um, but it just, in recent years, Mal, it's just gotten... You know, that it's like they make everything nine, ten o'clock in the morning. It just, it's. Oh, yeah. ew. Yeah. And most days it's not, it's not good. 
I don't know. It, right. Intern Yoko still swears by it. She still wants to go down there before concerts and stuff. And, and I'll abide by it. I'm fine. But right. I, I, I well, and also by the, you know, nowadays things are so expensive too. You don't want to spend your money on food that's like subpar. Right. And it's very expensive down there. It's, mm. it's, it's incredibly expensive down there. But, you know, I, I, you know, I'd rather go to, you know, I'd rather go to other restaurants down there. You know, yeah. Mickey's Diner isn't down there anymore. I know. I heard it was like once COVID hit, they yeah. just never reopened their doors. Yeah. And Mickey's Diner used to be this little, little boxcar diner that you could, it was open all night. You, mm-hmm. could, you could go down there. It's a little greasy spoon diner and it was, oh, it was so good. But it was, just, yeah. it was, it was just so quaint, you know, you could. Well, and it was a landmark because it's in several films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was so, it was, it was just so cool. It was such a cool little atmosphere down there, but mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah, Tom Reed's was, is, uh, and, um, Killian's is a nice little, uh, yep. That's a nice pub. Yeah. We actually, um, uh, Nick Coleman, when I was uh, producing the Nick Coleman show, we did uh, did a morning show from Killian's. Okay. And uh, that was a fun little show. Um, boy, we packed that place. <laughs> packed that place at six in the morning. It, it was it was an odd show from six to nine. We we, <laughs> we packed that bar and and uh, and yes, we were drinking from six to nine in the morning. It was uh, it was something special. But God, I miss Nick. Rest in peace, Nick. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was a, it was a good show, good show. Uh, let's continue on. Uh, but yeah, we'll ride along with Mally someday on 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 YouTube. <laughs> it's cute. I mean, well, you know, yeah, I, no, when I, know. I get homesick and it's just like, oh, I remember that place. Oh, I know where they are. Blah blah blah. So it's just nice. Did they bust anybody when you were riding along? No, no. It was pretty quiet, maybe because it was like 30 below. Probably. So like no one was out. Yeah. And th- there is down by, um, down by Excel, down in that area where they were driving around, there is a, there's a homeless shelter down there. Mm. So they probably, everybody was probably in the shelter by that time. Right. Yeah. Cause I think it was about midnight. Yeah. Oh, Minnesota yeah. time. Yeah. Everybody yeah. was checked in. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was one of those things where it was late at night and I wasn't quite ready for bed. So. And there's, if it was as cold as I think, there was nobody on the street. No, no. Like when you can hear his car drive down the road because yes. it's so cold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then there's nobody on the street. That's a wonderful yeah. thing about folks. I got to tell you, there's a wonderful thing about Minnesota in winter. There's almost zero crime on the street uh, in when you're in a cold snap because mm-hmm. nobody wants to shoot anybody on the street <laughs> when, it's, no. when it's 15 below. Everybody just wants to get yeah. off the street and into somewhere warm. So. And when you when you open up the door and like the wind hits you and you it, you lose your breath, you know it's cold. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, even Derek was like, "What are those things in the you know from the building to building?" I'm like, "Those are skywalks." <laughs> yeah, nobody knows. Yeah, <laughs> those walkways. Yeah, they're skyways. They're skywalks. Yeah. Skyways. Yeah. So, I, yeah, and, and nobody knows what. That's where the crime happens is in the skyways. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, and the, and skyway crime is getting worse. So, oh, yeah, but the the skyways is where you have to watch yourself. Yeah, but it's, when I used to work the state capitol, they have tunnels everywhere. Yeah, so that's because of the cold weather and stuff. That's how you get to places. Mm-hmm. I always got lost, but <laughs> yes, yeah, tun- I remember tunnel, walking those tunnel systems in in St. Paul. There's more tunnel systems in St. Paul than there are in Minneapolis. Yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but but yeah, the the um, yeah, there's more 
there's more, especially Minneapolis now on the Skyways, there's more crime. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, I mean, just Minneapolis has gone downhill. I mean, I remember back in my 30s, you know, four o'clock in the morning, walking downtown with my girlfriend, oh, you know, you drunk as a skunk yeah. and feeling safe, totally fine. No, Nowadays, no. Ah, I don't even want to drive down there. No, and the warehouse district, you remember when the warehouse district, you could you could party it up all night long. Yeah. No, you can't do that. No worries. I would catch a cab by myself down there. No, you couldn't do that. No, couldn't do that. No. It's, a sad, it's a sad situation. That's for sure. Uh, time now for our, it's, it's a good lead into the not safe for work stuff or not safe for work edition of uh, dumb crime stupid criminals we have three stories today and of course for some reason two of them are naked stories I don't know why <laughs> um, but people are getting naked it's the middle of January I don't know why people are getting naked but they are so we, we tell you about them uh, we got to give you a little bit of time, though, to get the kids away from the listening device or your boss from the, the listening device if you're listening uh, at the job. So here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Here we go. A man was arrested for disrobing and brandishing a knife at a Simi Valley gym. To be exact, it's the one that's got um, a popular rapper. Okay. <laughs> the spokesperson. You know, the one that calls itself Princess Fitness. We'll just put it that way. Have you okay. seen those commercials? Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. A man was arrested for allegedly disrobing and threatening customers with a knife at a Simi Valley gym on Saturday night. The suspect was identified as 31-year-old Jovan Rojo by the Simi Valley Police Department. Um, officers responded to a Planet Fitness located on the 2800 block of East Cochrane Street at around 5 p.m., Rojo entered the gym's locker room and shower area, took off his clothing, and remained armed with a knife. <laughs> uh, I never get into the mindset of, I'm going to strip completely naked, but keep the knife. Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. At one point, he allegedly brandished the knife at a bystander who ran out of the locker room and called police. Arriving officers found Rojo inside the shower area while still armed with a knife. <laughs> Taking on all comers there, Melly. Oh, could you imagine the cops? They're like, put the knife down, but they're also like, put that thing away. Yes. <laughs> the other thing. <laughs> yeah, not the shampoo, not the conditioner, yeah. not the bar of soap. Yeah, the knife. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've got choices here. Uh, after a moment, authorities were able to take the suspect into custody. It's unclear why he was at the gym or what motive he may have had for bringing a knife. Yeah, you're there to work out, right? <laughs> right? No Planet Fitness employees or officers were injured during the incident. During his arrest, police discovered Rojo was also a suspect in an unrelated battery case. He was booked at the Ventura County Main Jail on charges of battery and brandishing a deadly weapon or firearm. Here's my thought, Mally. Uh -huh. I've seen the Planet Fitness commercials. I've seen, uh, I've seen Princess Fitness saying that they're slashing prices. That's my only <laughs> Literally, guess. yes. Yeah, I, I'm thinking he was there to slash prices as well. That's all I can come up with. That's all I got. <laughs> um meanwhile it appears i 
pulled up the same same story twice. Those were the naked stories. <laughs> <laughs> it was so nice. I wanted the naked man twice. So exactly. That's what she said. Um, and I guess our last story for today is this. Um, and we go to Florida for it. My, my grandpa had a saying, and it was, uh, you're in trouble now, pee-pee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I don't know why he ever said that. I think he just thought it was funny and cute. But according to uh, this headline, my grandfather evidently made a, an impression on the people at the smoking gun because it says, you're in big trouble now, Florida woman. <laughs> When I read the headline, I went, Grandpa? <laughs> I looked exactly. up at the That's sky. your sign. Yeah. It says, facing drug test, a suspect tried to pass off dog waste. Oh, God. Gross. <laughs> now, I got to ask you this, Mally, before I read the story. If you ever had to try and pass a drug test, how would you try to pass it? Well, it's definitely not with dog waste. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's been a couple of funny. Might as well use a Babe Ruth bar or something. Well, <laughs> you don't <laughs> test it that way. I mean, I mean, you got to pee in a, you know, pee in a cup or whatever. But, you know, there have been a couple of funny sitcom deals where, you know, like on The Office, you know, Steve Carell says, oh, I need your urine. And then he has somebody pee in a cup and it turns out that he's pregnant or whatever. You know, oh. stuff like that, you know. <laughs> Um, or uh, no, that wasn't him. It was, it was, I know people are going to say, no, that wasn't the episode, Tim. It was, it was, um, it was Dwight who peed in the cup for him. And then Dwight had to surrender his, um, he had to surrender his, uh, honorary uh, police officer job because he did the wrong thing. Um, I know I got my storylines mixed up. Um, but sitcoms tend to use the drug test thing as a trope. Uh. Yeah. I always get nervous when you have to take a drug test, even though I don't do drugs. I always mm -hmm. get nervous like they're going to find something. See, you know what I mean? At the pain clinic that I go to, they, they, they test me once every 60 days. Okay. Because, you know, they, they, they test you. And here's the thing. They test you for the drugs you're taking, and you shouldn't have any other drugs in your system other than the drugs you're taking. Okay. So that's... It's kind of a catch twenty two because you know if you if you test for drugs that you shouldn't be taking, well then they you're in violation of your drug contract and they can pull your drug contact. Gotcha. Con contract. Uh -huh. So um, yeah, so you have to be you know you have to be taking your your prescribed pain medication and nothing else. Mm. Now talk about walking a thin line. Yeah. <laughs> You have a lot to lose if they detect something that's not supposed to be there. Right. So, you know, you have to, you have to, you know, and, and the thing with that is that, you know, those, those drugs don't leave your system very quickly. And people, uh -huh. people tend to think, oh yeah, you know, I could, I could smoke a joint and cover it up or I could, you know, I could do this or I could do whatever and, and cover it up. It doesn't work that way, folks. It doesn't leave your system that quickly. So. Anywho, let's get to our story. In a monumentally moronic scheme, a woman admitted that she plotted to submit dog urine she had collected in an attempt to cheat a court-ordered drug screening. According to investigators, 42-year-old Jessica Beatty, this is what she looks like here, Mally. This is Jessica Beatty. Oh, 
Yep, she looks like she'd be swapping urine. <laughs> Does she look like she did the red rocket to the dog? Yeah, I don't know what, but oh, she's yeah. 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 Uh, which, by the way, that's uh, have you? Oh, I'm gonna go on a totally different tangent. Have you seen the new Ted prequel on uh, Peacock? No, I have not. <gasps> you gotta watch it, Mally. Really? I it, never watched the other ones. You never saw the Ted movies? Uh uh-uh. uh. With the teddy bear? Uh uh-uh. uh. Oh my God, they're so funny. Are they? Yeah. I didn't have any desire to. Maybe I'll check it out since you recommended it. Oh, you have to. You have to. It's good good humor. Um, so according to investigators, 42-year-old Jessica Beatty was subject to random testing as a stipulation of release terms related to her December 28th re- arrest for possession of drug paraphernalia and driving with a suspended license. Beatty is a Clearwater, Florida resident and has a lengthy rap sheet it says rap sheep <laughs> on the story. Now, you can't have a lengthy rap sheep, but the rapping's not mad. Um, <laughs> just saying. But she has a lengthy rap sheep with, uh, I'm reading it the way it says here, a lengthy rap sheep with numerous cocaine convictions and related incarceration terms. So if you have a rap sheep that's been convicted and has a drug problem, uh-huh. That's one bad sheep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The sheet, on the other hand, is just standard, I guess. Uh, free on her own recognizance following last month's arrest, Beatty had an appointment Thursday to pee in a cup at the county's misdemeanor probation unit. The test is designed to detect the presence of chemical substances or controlled substances, cops noted. Beatty apparently was concerned that her urine would turn up dirty with such a finding likely to result in a bond revocation and her immediate jailing. So Beatty uh, showed up with a fraudulent urine sample, according to a criminal complaint. A defendant's provision of urine is usually, I'm sorry, is visually monitored by a probation officer, making it difficult to hoodwink investigators. When confronted about the phony sample, Beatty reportedly admitted that she collected urine from her aunt's dog. Oh, jeez. Which she intended to provide during testing. The complaint does not indicate what kind of container Beatty used to house the fraudulent sample, nor does it detail how the ex-con actually collected the canine waste, which drug tests can easily differentiate from the human equivalent. Beatty was arrested at the probation office and charged with urine testing fraudulent practices, which is a misdemeanor. In light of the January 11th caller, a judge revoked the prior order freeing Beatty in the drug driving case. Beatty last year launched a cleaning service that she incorporated with her boyfriend, an ex-con who's rap sheep, I'm sorry, rap sheet. (laughs) Now I've got them mixed up. Uh, includes convictions for robbery, narcotics possession, uh, disorderly conduct, obstructing police, and loitering and prowling. So uh, I think they call it the cons cleaning service. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of scary. You have them cleaning your home and they both have a criminal background. Yeah. So, you know, just put up your valuables before you have them come clean. Apparently. Yeah. So there you go. So that'll do it for Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals today. Mally, what you got going on? Uh, I would like to say a lot, but just taking it one day at a time, just trying to get healthy. There you go. Taking it one day at a time. Uh-huh. It's admirable. I'm going to live by your words. There, well, you shouldn't live by my words. <laughs> I'm nobody special. 
but uh, yeah, there you go. So check check out paranormalgirl.com for for all that's going on with Mally. Um, I myself am up at KNSI this weekend, KNSI.com from 7 to 9 a.m. Central Time. Um, I want to thank, you know, Mally, uh, when I'm up at uh, KNSI, I, I post on social media to people just to say good morning to them. I want to thank everybody who says good morning to me. It's, it's Aww, that's nice. sweet. Yeah, it's a nice positive way to start the morning. And I get quite a few people who say good morning to me, so that's kind of nice. Oh. Nice positive way to start the weekend. So there you go. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, tomorrow on the big program, uh, Mally will be joining me again. We'll be doing some supernatural news, and uh, we got some we got some good stuff this week. So there you go. Awesome. There you go. So that'll do it for today. Uh, I want to thank my guest today uh, again. It was a uh, it was kind of a gripping story of uh, just of of being wrongfully convicted, and and yeah, it does happen in our in our system, and it happened right here in in Minneapolis. So. Um, again, these things happen in our society, folks, and we're not picking on the police. We're not picking on on Hennepin County. We're not picking on uh, Amy Klobuchar or anybody like that. Um, but it was one of those stories that we we felt we needed to cover. So, and we did, and we want to we want to help Marvin get back on his feet. And and after twenty years away of being wrongfully convicted, Marvin Haynes is is back in society and, and trying to make good. So I want to thank Marvin Haynes for being on the program today. And again, we have links in the description of this program to help him get back on his feet. And if you feel like contributing, please uh, contribute to a man who's been wrongly convicted. So we want to thank Marvin for being on today. And we want to thank you as well for being uh, part of this program. Thanks so much for uh, continuing to listen to True Crime Tuesday. And we'll see you tomorrow right here on Darkness Radio.